there, and welcome to another episode of West Obsessed, where the writers and editors of High Country News discuss issues critical to the health of the American West. I'm Brian Calvert, the editor of High Country News, broadcasting from the studios of our partner, KVNF, in Paonia, Colorado. Uh, we've got a really great episode today. We've just put to bed our latest issue, and the cover story on that is a deep dive into the cutting edge and, uh, and dark history of fire science. Uh, here to help me talk about the story is our contributing editor, Sarah Gilman, who's joining us via Skype from Portland. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, Brian. And also joining us is our frequent contributor and award-winning writer, Douglas Fox. He's on the phone from the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome, Doug. Good morning, Brian. It's safe to say that the American West is facing some major wildfire challenges. The severe drought, rising annual temperatures, and decades of fire suppression have created tinderbox conditions across much of the region, and fire season is getting longer and longer. So when you have fires go big out there, they really, really go big. Uh, In fact, Doug, you wrote in the latest cover story that 1% of wildfires account for 90% of the land burned each year in the western U.S., Um, These fires can damage a lot of property, and they can be a risk to firefighters. So understanding them uh, is pretty important. So why don't we start there, Doug? How did you decide to look into fire science? Essentially, you're reporting on something and trying to find something new in what is essentially an ongoing story in the West. Right. So uh, about a year and a half ago, I was uh, reporting out a kind of an unrelated story um, on drought in the West. And I did kind of as part of that just dip a little bit into fire and was talking to a couple of researchers just about trends in fire. And, you know, certainly people talked about the the level of of really extreme fire behavior that's seen these days um, where fires just get very large, the burn rate goes very high, and they just start to do extreme things like spotting long distances or, or... or fire worlds that can do a lot of damage. Fire worlds are like little fire tornadoes. And uh, and what really interested me in this area, you know, I, I talked to a researcher who was looking at the mechanism of this, and what really interested me initially was just that there was a lot of interesting backstory to this. Um, I, mean, I think, A, that they were still, you know, working out some basic mechanisms of even how fire spread and and how the plume works, how the rising gases work, but also that this research had a history going back, you know, at least, at very least into World War II, uh, where there were some large fires, hmm. but forest thing. fires. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's really interesting because, you know, essentially humans have had a, let's just say, a really long-standing relationship with fire, uh, but we still actually don't know a lot about it. And, you know, with these, yeah, these bigger fires starting to do kind of funky things, we're we're starting to really need to understand them more. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the science reporting here, because this is essentially the story that we did is a, a really uh, deep look into into the science of this. What was your sort of plan to go into this, and how how did you report uh, this this uh, science? Uh, this is a really kind of this is a little bit out of the area that I normally report on. I do a lot of earth sciences, and ironically, I spend a lot of time writing about ice these days, about glacial ice. But uh, I, you know, I think what really caught my interest in this story was it was kind of a different way of looking and thinking about fire, a different way of looking at fire. And it wasn't, you know, about fuel on the ground, and it wasn't even necessarily so much about how many acres being burnt per day, but it was it was about the, the part of the fire that you can't go back and replay. 
the card of the fire that you can't go back and look on the ground at how much was burned and how much you know dry fuel was there. It was about the gaseous part of the fire that's kind of swirling up around, that's swirling up into the sky. And, you know, people can see the smoke, but they can't really see what the gases are doing. And, uh, you know, in some ways it's the invisible part of the fire, the part of the fire that's changing, you know, every second. And, but also really um, impacts what is being experienced by firefighters on the ground. And so to me, that was just sort of a, a wow moment, just thinking about there's this animal, this gaseous animal that is the plume. And how do people look at that? How do they think of it? And, and this is the part of fire that's, I think, least understood because, you know, you can't go back and replay it. You can do experiments in the laboratory, but they tend to be small experiments, um, you know, burning, quote unquote, trees that are maybe the size of a matchstick or a little bit larger. Mm. And you don't know if the things you see with with six-inch flames happening are the same things that you see with 60 or 100-foot flames. You don't know for sure. And certainly there are uh, fires that there are prescribed burns and fire experiments even where they do go out and burn real trees or real grasslands. But even these, you know, they try not to do it on days when it's really going to, when the fire is really going to run away from them. Well, yeah, well, that's that takes us actually right to the beginning of your story because we, you know the story opens up in an aircraft aircraft into UW or uh, that would be November two uniform whiskey I think if you were uh, uh, actually <laughs> to call signing that aircraft um, this is August twenty ninth two thousand sixteen it's a flight over Idaho this is a science a science plane so put us in that plane what uh, what was going on there well so right this is a plane uh, coming in about. 16,000 feet, and it's just a little cramped thing. It's got, uh, you know, it's a twin-engine, twin-propeller plane and barely room for four people in it with two people kind of crammed in the back running a bunch of scientific instruments. And this plane's got, you know, it's outfitted with a whole bunch of things. It's, it's sucking in cloud droplets and air from the wings and, and measuring, you know, any sort of ash particles that come in or cloud droplet sizes that come in. But it's also uh, it's also got some really specialized radar um, that faces straight down from the plane, where they can actually they believed they weren't sure, but they believed that if they could fly this plane over this over the rising uh, plume, the smoke column, that this radar would let them see into the plume and see kind of the simultaneous movement of gases inside the plume, all that turbulence and eddies and how fast things were moving. Um, and now the ironic thing was that as they were flying toward the plume, you know, they were looking at this thing with the regular weather radar of an airplane, hmm. which looks forward. And it looked like just a, a really kind of a mild updraft, like a thing that might make a little bit of rain, really low rain, but nothing that anyone would think any thing of flying through, the kind of updraft that planes fly through all the time. Hmm. And so they decided, okay, well, we weren't sure about flying through this big, huge, towering, angry-looking fire plume, but it looks okay on the on the weather radar, so <laughs> let's just go in. What could possibly go wrong? Exactly. What, what could possibly <laughs> go wrong? <laughs> and so immediately they go in, and suddenly they're just 
surrounded by orange glow. The world outside is just blotted out. And then it turns to black, and the airplane just being... The people inside feel themselves being crammed down into their seats as the airplane's being lifted up like a leaf by this updraft. And then shortly afterward, they go back into orange glow as they're coming out the other side, and the airplane suddenly kind of slams down again. It suddenly goes into a dive, and things lift up in the air, you know, pens and pencils and notebooks lift up in the air, and and then they're out again. And during their time through the that flying through that plume, the plane itself, um, almost two vertical miles above the fire, experienced an updraft of 80 miles an hour, and uh, and then actually a downdraft also. That was when they were kind of slammed downward. But the radar looking downward into the plume, you know, this is like staring down the throat of a monster, <laughs> of a mushroom cloud-sized monster. The radar was able to pick up the signal from rising smoke particles. It's a really fine, unlike the weather radar on the airplane, this is a really fine-tuned one to look at, to kind of pick up smaller particles than the raindrops or cloud drops that a normal, that the cl- that plane radars normally look at. They detected updrafts faster than 100 miles an hour further mm-hmm. down in, in the plume. And so, so it was really crazy, and it was the first time that anyone had ever made that kind of direct measurement of what was happening inside a big fire plume. You know, they decided to fly through this plume, and, and you sort of describe it in your stories, like 35,000 feet punching into the sky. This big, huge, yeah, mushroom cloud-looking plume. They fly through it, and was it a fluke that something happened at the time that they flew through it, or is that sort of thing always happening in that kind of plume, and they just happened to decide finally to go fly through through one? Was it sort of like a fluke that way, or...? Did they get lucky or not? Uh-huh. <clears throat> well, I would say not. I mean, I'd say it was it was uh, preparation equals luck. Mm-hmm. They did fly through several other fires over a, a two-day period, um, but um, and, and those fires didn't really yield all that much. Mm-hmm. But then they flew through the through the plume of the Pioneer Fire uh, three times that day and really got similar behavior. And after the third time, <laughs> the, the, there was actually a whole lot of kind of roaring static coming in over the ra- over the radio in the plane, and the uh, pilot decided to turn the radio antenna off because they were actually afraid that they were going to get hit by lightning, <laughs> lightning generated by this fire plume, and you know that that could have a really a devastating impact on the aircraft. And after that, they decided maybe it's not so safe after after all to. <laughs> go zigzagging through this thing, but even after that, they followed. Um, they flew around the plume, and there were places where the plume kind of bends over and jags over in the sky, so they could get over parts of it without being in it. And the same thing the next day, they flew over parts of the plume where it wasn't really high up, or there was one time a plume, a new plume started and just punched all the way up to thirty-five or thousand or 35 or 40,000 feet over a period of maybe 30 minutes, and they got plenty of passes over, and they got those really those really strong updrafts then, too. I think the thing is, it's not only 1% of fires that burn these huge areas. Even on those fires, most of their growth happens on specific days. Hmm. So you'll have a fire like the Pioneer Fire, and maybe, maybe that fire 
fires burning for, you know, 60 days or so, maybe two or three days accounts for the majority of that area burned. Mm. Because, you know, it's not just the flames on the ground, it's the atmosphere conditions up above. It's what's called unstable atmosphere, where you have air layers that are really easy for rising hot gases to just punch through. Hmm. And that just kind of helps flip the whole thing into a, a bigger a bigger flame or a bigger fire, basically? Yeah, well, so, the, I mean, in a way, basically. the rising plume, I mean, you think, okay, well, the rising plume is stuff that's already come out of the fire. You know, it's like it's like the stuff coming out of the exhaust pipe of your, of your automobile. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that's not going to make your automobile go faster, right, having more exhaust come out. But the thing is, in the case of the um, in the case of the wildfire, this is actually how it breathes. This is how it breathes. This is this is sort of the motor that gives the entire fire its power. And the reason is because those rising updrafts, they're all that gas rising up is leaving is leaving a void underneath, um, mm. a void of gas, and so air is rushing in to fill that. And so what what that rising plume is doing is it's actually sucking in fresh air and fresh oxygen at the bottom of the fire. So, you know, it's like blowing a bellows on a, uh, on a, on a fireplace, you know, the flames will kind of leap up and, and it can cause a fire to suddenly start burning, you know, two, three, four, five, maybe 10 times more rapidly. And by that, I mean, consuming several times more pounds or tons of wood per minute. If you're just joining us, uh, you're listening to West Obsessed, where we at High Country News discuss issues critical to the American West. Today we're talking about fire science with contributing editor Sarah Gilman and writer Douglas Fox. And Doug, we were about to jump into, you know, we had these scientists uh, in a plane uh, studying this plume, but uh, that's only one part of the sort of fire science story. And I wonder if you could just walk us back and, and take us to 1943, or, or earlier, sort of the, um, you know, how did fire science contribute to the war effort in World War II? Not a great sure. way. Sure. So one of the difficult things in today in understanding how these really extreme fire behaviors happen is that you don't, there aren't too many times to actually collect information uh, because uh, you can't do experiments. It's really hard to do an experiment where you, set a raging fire and let that plume go 40,000 feet into the air, because that's kind of dangerous, and um, it's really hard to get permission to do that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, and, and, and actual wildfires, you know, all the efforts tend to be on suppressing the fire. Uh, so it, it's kind of a strange thing, but one of, the, one of the big sources of sort of foundational understanding of these really extreme fire behaviors comes from fires that occurred during wartime, for example, and studies that were done during the Cold War. And sort of one of the one of the examples, a prime example of this, is some of the firebombing that happened in World War II. And kind of the classic of that is Hamburg, Germany. Um, there was a period of time in 1943, in July and August 43, when the British and, and the Americans, the Allies, decided to make a big effort to knock out Hamburg due to its strategic importance, industrial importance in Germany. There was one night in particular, it was an, uh, something like 740 British planes dropped bombs onto Hamburg over a period of about 
45 minutes. It was something like uh, 1,200 tons of bombs per square mile. The thing was, it wasn't just bombs. It was most of this was incendiary charges. This is uh, sticks of, of phosphorus or magnesium that come down hissing and burning. And so what happened is they were dropping these blast bombs. They were blasting open these these buildings that weren't necessarily flammable on the outside, exposing everything inside the building. And then these things were dropping by the thousands, these incendiary devices. And so within, and the other thing is that they really tried to do this within a concentrated area. They very specifically planned to have planes come in and drop flares to mark to the wave after wave of bombers flying through to mark to them where to drop the bomb. And uh, they really wanted them all concentrated. And that's what they got on that particular night. And these many thousands of fires rapidly started to merge. And from then it just sort of, things got really out of control. Uh, you've got the collective inhalation of all these fires making, making um, sort of indrafts. And pretty soon, uh, there were winds, just literally gales, kind of roaring through some of these urban canyons of Hamburg. Uh, it's estimated that some of these winds exceeded 110 miles an hour. There were trees that were ripped out of the ground. These gales were so strong that people people who came out of their, their shelters underneath the buildings, and incidentally, a lot of the time, these were the people who people who survived because many thousands of people were asphyxiated in their underground shelters when the buildings collapsed on top of them. But um, these people were had to crawl through the streets, had to soak their clothing, crawl through the streets. They were Many of them probably survived only because there were canals going through the city of Hamburg and they were able to get down to those canals. But these, these buildings uh, that were burning, sometimes just even the the, a burst of indraft from a building could suck in uh, a, a frail elder person or a baby into the burning building. I mean, it was, it's, it's absolutely horrendous. It, it, it sounds hellish when you're reading the, the, the survivor's account. And there were times when what seemed to be a tongue of flame or a fireball would just burst out of a building, too. Sort of many, many sort of these sightings of these, of these horrible things that the fire did one second or another there were fire tornadoes, fire whirls that would kind of go through a, a street and just snatch up a would-be survivor and turn them into what was described as a human torch. And in the end, that uh, at least 42,000 people ended up dying in that firestorm, uh, 37,000 injured. And you know that was a result of U.S. military research aiding the sort of allies to sort of... T- let them know what would happen with this. They even built they built buildings that would be exactly like they would probably be bombed in Hamburg or in right. German so, cities. Right. So in the in in the Dugway Proving Ground in uh, in in northern Utah in in the nineteen forty three, there was a rapid uh, effort to build these perfect look alike. Um, perfectly replicated German buildings and also Japanese buildings as well. And uh, they had architects. They had architects from these countries who were literally helping them design everything down to the eighth of an inch 
measurement on exactly the types of wood that was sitting under exactly the types of tiles on the roofs. They had people um, furnishing these with specially built German-style furniture, beddings, uh, traditional, uh, at the time, traditional German layouts of houses, everything to be exactly the same, babies, cribs, curtains, everything. And then they started dropping bombs, incendiary devices on these little life-size dollhouses and, and burning them, getting them on fire, working really hard to put the fire out, rebuilding them and doing it again and again. And, and this lasted, this happened during the earlier months of 1943 leading up to Hamburg. It was, a, it was the British who were doing the night bombing in Hamburg, the so-called area bombing, where they wouldn't try to aim for specific buildings, but just pick a patch of the city, maybe a couple miles by a couple miles, and try to drop all of their bombs there, which was a very conscious attempt to get a firestorm going. Um, the U.S. was doing more pinpoint raids in, in Germany, but the U.S. then used this same tactic in the bombing of some Japanese cities. Right, so there's there's a really you know there's a really dark history to the, some of this science for sure um and and Sarah I wanted to ask you in, in terms of putting this story together I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about your experience editing that story because what we do oh. is we move through some some really technical science stuff and then we move through some really horrific history but mm-hmm. sort of where we land is sort of where that science is heading Right yeah and that I mean editing wise to get into the weeds it's it's it was very hard to figure out how to have those things coexist in the same story uh, because the history is so fascinating and so dark um, but you also have to move through it fairly quickly so that the story is about one thing and not the other and they don't feel like two separate stories um, mm-hmm. and so it was I mean editorially it's a really big challenge to figure out how you talk about this really dark thing and give it its due because it's it's actually I think one of the most interesting parts about the story is where all of the science came from, um, without getting stuck there in the land of burning torches and babies getting sucked into buildings and um, editing the story and reading and writing the story. I mean I, I think it's it's one of these stories that's a lot about how the processes that go into understanding how something works. Um, and it can start to feel a little esoteric, like all the minutiae and things that go into like all these sort of basic behaviors of fire. Um, and a lot of it can feel like knowledge for knowledge's sake. Um, but something to remember as science funding is potentially being cut um, for the, you know, these huge budgets that fund so much research throughout the United States um, is that so much of that research, um, the basic the basic research that just goes into understanding how the world works, those things eventually lead to major practical applications. Um, I mean, where Doug ends up in the story, you know, um, for for hundreds of years, we thought, humans thought that major diseases like malaria and the plague were caused by evil spirits and foul mists called miasmas. And not until, you know, the germ theory of disease came about and we learned how to see these other forces in the world, these tiny little creatures that caused these diseases, did we understand how to actually fight them? So that came out of, to some extent, just a, a curiosity about the world and an attempt to understand the way things are put together for their own sake, as well as for their practical applications. And I think that's a good thing to remember yeah. reading the story and thinking about 
the importance of funding this kind of work, um, even before we know exactly what the practical applications might be. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think I think knowledge for knowledge's sake is okay, but you're you know it it does lead. Uh, it does lead to other things and, and other ways of, of seeing, and I, th- I think that's totally true. Well, maybe under you the know. maybe under the president's new budget, with all that new military spending, we can get some more science research going. <laughs> well, they are cutting the Department of Agriculture, so that would be uh, a lot of Forest Service budget, and that's a lot of people who are doing this research. So I'm not so sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you know, just uh, in the last few minutes that we have here, uh, Doug, where do you think this science is going to lead us? You know. Fascinating science when you think about people flying a, an airplane through a fire plume, but you know they're really trying to nail down some very basic things, and um, and even just for example, what drives a fire plume to really lift up? And one of the ideas is that water uh, liberated as a combustion product from perfectly dry wood, that this water uh, actually helps drive the plume upward and in the same way that moisture in the air will uh, create the updraft that fuels, that powers a tornado or a hurricane or a, or a severe thunderstorm. But there's so many basic things that they don't know about even answering that question. And so, you know, when, when, uh, when Craig Clements, who's the, one of the researchers who was involved in this, um, in this uh, research flight that sent the plane through the Pioneer fire plume, when they were looking over the data later, I mean, first of all, it worked incredibly well. They weren't sure it would work, but it worked well. And so what they had was this sort of sort of like an MRI, an MRI slice or a CAT scan sliced through the fire. And you can see all these different blotches of color through it. It looks kind of chaotic. But those, you know, those, that's color-coded velocity of the air, velocity going up or going down. And as you look at this, you start to see things like, for example, these rolling, these massive eddy currents on this, on either side of the plume. And, and to call them eddies really kind of understates, you know, how ferocious they are. You know, this quote-unquote eddy might be a, a 60 mile an hour updraft right next to a 40 mile an hour downdraft. And this is likely what the plane, the kind of thing the plane got sucked into when it sort of suddenly went down. Um, and sent things flying in the cockpit. This is probably what it went through when it was exiting the plume. But um, this starts to tell you things like how much is all that hot gas getting diluted on its way up through the atmosphere? How much is the water vapor that comes off of the quote-unquote hydrogen oxide that comes off of the fire along along with the CO2 how much is that getting diluted out? Because one of the questions is, if, you know, if, if the if the water that is coming as a combustion product from the fire, if it's really going to help power the plume, it has to get up to that level in the sky, likely 20,000, 30,000 feet or more, where it starts to condense into liquid. So they need to know, you know, how much of it is actually getting down there. I mean, getting up there. And you know, basic things about how quickly the plume is rising, what's the temperature inside the plume, what's the density. But the desire is, you know, someday this could lead to things where there could be ground-based instruments, something like called a LIDAR, which is a laser that basically kind of just scans the plume from the back of a truck and gives you a little bit of a velocity structure. It can't, it's not as complete as what they did with radar, but it's good. And you could have these things sitting in trucks, you know, near uh, even on fire engines, 
near these fires, continuously scanning the plume, and you can actually see things start to develop. You can see the beginning of a fire world developing. You can see the beginning of the rotation of the whole fire plume, which is going to increase the strength of the end drafts, um, which is going to increase the fire uh, intensity. There's a lot of things that you can see that would allow you to sort of have an ongoing forecast of the fire's behavior that's not just based on, oh, there's a cold front moving in, but that's actually based on literally what the plume is doing and often could give even just precious minutes of advance warning of something happening. Right. So so the key to this is that, you know, we are having more and more intense fires and we're putting wildland firefighters into those. Um, We're putting them uh, at risk sometimes to protect uh, p- property that's in the sort of wildland urban interface. Uh, this fire research is is meant to it could give firefighters mo- more information to make better decisions so that we don't see some of these catastrophic uh, situations that end up killing firefighters. Um, I mean, I think certainly the problem of extreme wildfires is not going away soon. Um, and you know, as the spring comes along, we're going to see what kind of fire season we have. Uh, I think the importance of this kind of research is going to become more and more evident uh, as these big fire seasons continue. Um, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately, though, I think that's all we have time for today. If you want to read more of, about uh, Doug's deep dive into fire science uh, or see other coverage of wildfires, you can do that at hcn.org. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast and you want to join the conversation from this uh, broadcast, you can join that online at kvnf.org. Uh, I want to uh, thank you again for being here, Sarah. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks a lot, Doug. Thanks, Brian. I'm Brian Calvert, the editor of High Country News, and as always, thank you for listening.